Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. And this episode, I talked to Storm Ashwood, who is a gaffer and also a film director. Uh, he most recently did a film called Escape and Evasion, a drama about a soldier who's returned from battle in Burma and he's coming to grips with it. So it's a great sort of dark, dramatic piece about discovering this man's past. It's a great little Aussie film. And also he's uh, gaffered... Um, hundreds of TV commercials and uh, many feature films and TV series. So, yeah, so let's uh, dive in. Welcome to the show. Uh, great to have you on to chat with us. And you're a, quite an interesting uh, character in the industry because you're a gaffer who's been doing it for many years, but also a director. So mm. in the beginning, I guess, how did you become a filmmaker? What, what, how did, what was your passion about it and... How you got involved? Okay. Um, well, I've I've kind of always been a film. Well, I've always been a writer. I um I was writing uh, screenplays and scripts and that from um, primary school. I think I won my first um, screenplay award at twelve for a little play I wrote called The Wrong Pub. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, and then um. Wanting to be um, a, a a director, I um, figured the you know the easiest way is via um, acting. So I was doing plays and acting courses and stuff like that, and sort of fell into modelling and stuff. And uh, that was yeah. So so I took that as an approach. Um, I sat an interview with um, Whopper and um, got into Whopper. And I never followed through with that because I uh, I got this 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 girl pregnant and sort of married her and we had four kids so I had this massive sort of diversion to what I wanted to do. In the meantime, I kept writing scripts, and uh, by the time I was twenty eight, I thought, well, fuck, I you know I, I want to get back into it. So went to uni and did a degree in um, film psychoanalysis. Is um, an an honours degree in, in philosophy, and uh, while I was there, I started making short films. Um, prior to that, I'd done commercials and that for a sales company, but uh, this was the first time I started really doing drama. And uh, still being a father with four kids, I needed to make money. So second year uni, I um I volunteered on McLeod's daughters. And um, I said, look, I'll just do any job, any job at all. And they put me in lighting. And uh, from there I, I wound up being the gaffer for all the guys at, at, at uni. And um, then I started getting off of jobs. So um, I'd hire all the lighting equipment from the old gaffers that I'd, you know, I'd made friends with and stuff. And every pay job I got, I'd buy one light. And uh, 20 years later, I wind up with four trucks. Wow. So um, that's how I, I fell into lighting. Um, but always writing, always making short films. I 
always doing that from the outset. So there you go. So with yeah. um, with gaffing, I guess the the wonderful thing you probably would have experienced is you had a real wide range of uh, filmmakers, DPs, directors to work with and and learn from. So it probably is a almost like a bonus. You're getting paid to do you know a pretty interesting job with doing different lighting and techniques, mm. and then on top you get to actually learn a lot from other people and. You know, and, and not necessarily copy them, but you know. So w- was that how you saw Absolutely. that? It was it was it was amazing. Like um like you know, you dig deep into um what a director does when he's uh he's not directing. And, you know, often the money making side of it is editing or um acting. And uh for me, it, ha- it happened to be gaffing, and, and gaffing was brilliant because he, he, here I am, I'm standing right next to the director, listening to everything he's going through or she's going through on, you know, how to, you know, get the best from their, um, their uh, actors. And meanwhile, I've got, a, you know, an earphone in my other ear from the DOP, and we're talking about the best way to uh, light the scene from the blocking that we've observed, and I, it was, you know, in in, in my mind, it, it was a way better experience than uh, being an editor or an actor coming into becoming a director. Um, so it was great, and I I I I must have, you know, stood next to over two hundred directors, probably over fifty DOPs. Good way to. Uh, hone my skills and research what works and what doesn't work mm. as a as a director um yeah no i recommend it wow well it's it's a, definitely a good way in and i mean obviously because you've had the goal it wasn't a case of i guess uh, some people where they've kind of started one role and then they started becoming interesting in another role and by yeah. the sound of it you've always had that goal of wanting That's to it. direct and write um, so with gaffing, what what are some of the sort of key things that really taught you as to become a better director outside of obviously learning from other directors? Was there some things that you really real helped you to realise? Yeah, okay. I, I um I suppose uh, first off, interestingly, as a writer, I always write the lighting design into my scripts <laughs> and I was, I was doing that even as a teenager. So, you know, the, the DOPs I work with kind of have a chuckle when they read the script and they're going, so the warm light covers his face and blah, blah, blah. I'm going, yeah, I, I, you know, light is, is, is something I love anyway. Um, I didn't realize I loved it until I, you know, look, reflected back and analyzed the way I write. Um, but uh, the amazing thing about being a gaffer on set as a director is um, all the um, tricks and nuances that, that you learn. Um, uh, so uh, you get to see how, how you can achieve things um, quickly and efficiently without it being expensive and costly. An example was uh, on the school uh, the feature film, The School, which I wrote and directed a few years ago, there's a big scene where um, our characters have to walk through a river that's underground and get from one side to the other. And we had costs of like over, 
um, over a hundred thousand dollars up to 500 grand on look how can we make this possible you know we're going to build this and build that and build this and build this and do this and do that and you know like it's this incredible expense and i'm you know i i just thought well we'll have it if we just uh build the flats just a, a left and right one on top of some mega deck and set the mega deck into a pool and they just cross the pool mm-hmm. done there's less than 10 grand we have this massive set mm-hmm. and and uh you know i was only aware of how we could achieve that at such a cheap cost and so efficiently because of my experience on set yeah as a gaffer. Yeah. I mean, it's huge because that, that's one thing, even a DP, but uh, as gaffer as well, you're you're there to work together and pretty much solve problems the whole time. So it's like, how can we do it the quickest but best result, <laughs> which is yeah. always hard sometimes, you know, budget, but that's the thing. It helps you to start thinking that way. That's you know? right. And at the end of the day, it's like in with film, like for me, it's always about... Um, every frame counts so don't waste time on screen and so you have to be super efficient at telling a story as well but be obviously engaging um so yeah i think it's important to that that's a really important thing to for especially these days with uh, the lack of budgets we have to really think outside the box and still make it work but you know it's what's it's what's in the frame doesn't matter what's on the outside of the frame <laughs> that's right you want your i mean budgets Budgets are always going to be tight and um, you want every dollar to count and, and you want every dollar, you know, to be really spent on on screen, you know, like you don't want to be blowing your money on the fancy hotels to stay in or, or um, you know, extra, um, extravagance, that's not necessary. Just put the money on the screen because that's what you're selling. You're selling that product. Yeah, like uh, that's um, that's one thing I suppose I you know I I have I've definitely learnt and something I've definitely observed is where money can be just absolutely flaunted and thrown around. Like, uh, mm-hmm. and some people have this idea. You say, "Oh, you're making a movie. Oh, well, normally it's a grand, but today for you it's ten grand." You know, <laughs> yeah. smile. And it's like uh, it's 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 um unfortunate but uh you know, australian budgets are tight and uh if you're smart you can you know really achieve you know, something spectacular so long as you you know put the put the money on the you know into production values yes yeah yeah definitely you know, make that count good lighting camera lenses you know, good cast so in saying that was there something during the, that in the beginnings especially before you maybe or even during it like you've done your first feature that really changed your perspective on on making films i mean i can't i can't think of anything anything specific i suppose i i i never wanted to make um ultra indie low budget films uh you know like i didn't want to uh, several times i could have made a film with 60 grand or 100 grand and um, like uh, I've worked on many of those films, and so with the like, like you can make a great film, but it's going to be a 
a strong, it needs to be a strong drama film. Mm. It needs to be a film where you've got great actors and you provide a good drama piece. And um, if the story is is um, compelling, it, it can go somewhere. Um, and, uh, yeah, I suppose that type of film, you know, I kind of wanted to sort of skip that and 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 work on films where I can sort of put a little, little bit more adventure so that the audience can have a bit more of a ride. No, um, yeah. Strong performances. So, therefore, you know, I was, I was sort of looking at genre films. And uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, genre was like a, an evil word at <laughs> film school. I don't know if it still is. It is it still an evil word? I, I think so. I, I think it's still it's still the the, the yeah. strange play on on this idea that oh, it's got to be an Australian story and make something yeah. that's not like, nothing wrong with that. But it's like we need to make films that actually make money. So nothing wrong, nothing wrong with it at all. But you want like call me an egomaniac, but I want to make films that people are going to go and watch. Mm. And you know, I can. I can make a story about a personal friend of mine who's struggled through cancer and I can make a compelling, dear, sincere story. But who's, who's, who's going to watch that? You know, the, the general public just don't. Um, I've made enough documentaries to know, you know, what holds people's attentions and what don't. You know, so, you know, genre, genre is entertaining. So you take that... Um, that humanity or that hope that you have in those um, heartfelt life experiences which you've um, lived through and you put that into your genre. And I think that's a way better way of getting a message across because you're more likely to get it across to a wider audience. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, people, um, I spoke to Sue Maslin uh, on this <coughs> podcast and, you know, she said that, you know, people want and uh, an emotional ride and, and you know and surprises like you know that's the big thing so yeah. you know you, you, yeah it's hard to do that with a art house film it's it's nice if you can come up with something you know in that style of an indie film where you can still surprise audiences and you know and there's endless films in the, in the past where you've seen um they've succeeded really well because they've gave you something new even though it was so indie but yeah. the you know, like I always think of someone like Clerks. You know, the production value is atrocious, but the 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 performance and the and the script, the witty script, yeah. it just it it excels so far that it doesn't matter that they've shot it in the worst quality, you know, black and white film, because yeah. you're engaged the whole time and it's surprising. You know, you you get these surprises of especially back then when it came out, it was like whoa, <laughs> you know, very funny and. Yeah. Um, so you can do an indie film, but you really have to then, then again, come up with something very, very unique to, to yeah. get the audience involved and, and, and talk about. Uh, like Clerks is a very clever, snappy script. Yeah. No. You know, so that's a good cool. example of an indie film where, okay, um, quality is not there as far as execution, but the script and the, and the performances really make it work. So with... Uh, working in as, a, 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 as a gaffer, did you, or as it, even as a director, did you think about doing commercials or to experiment? 
with some of these concepts you have or is it is it more you just make short films and that's where you experiment with the ideas that you have to? Yeah, so um, I've made quite a few short films and I made, I made those short films um, like each one with a specific um, experimental purpose. Um, and uh, so is, I've used that to hone my skills as well as um, music clips. Every time I've had a music clip get offered to me, of okay, so let's find a way that we can sort of experiment on something so that I can use this in my um, feature filmmaking. So I've wound up not doing many commercials. Um, I directed one last week, coincidentally. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've not uh, chased production companies or agencies to say, hey, um, uh, employ me as a director. I suppose part of the reason is because I actually didn't know how. Um, uh, attaching myself to a um, an agent now so you know maybe I'll get more commercial work and uh, I'm sure every commercial I get I'll learn something from it but I'll be doing it really just to make money um, mm. principally so yeah I guess no it's been a where, where I've um, learned some of my skills from as a director is definitely from um, making short films I suppose, it, like, um, if I was to give anyone advice about being a film director, is uh, to make films. You know, like, you know, don't sit in your room and hoard over a script for twenty years. Mm-hmm. Get out there and start making films and start making mistakes because that's the only way you're going to get good at being a film director. You're not just born. You know, instantly you're you know Quentin Tarantino. Mm. And then it wasn't Quentin Tarantino, you know, immediately either. It's about making films, experimenting, learning, making mistakes. You know. With short films, I generally that's what how I see them. I kind of a lot of people, or ki- especially kids starting out, you know, they'll make their short film festival runs, and you know, and their goal is almost like that's what's going to get them the vehicle to to get the big film made or, or documentary or whatever. But I think it's actually to see it as a as a opportunity to experiment and go full balls. No, no one's limiting you to do whatever, and just try out what you're trying to trying to achieve in a in a bigger scope down the track, and and see it as an experiment. Don't see it as a as like oh this is what's going to get me to to the, you know to some director or whatever. Um, and I think that's the what I've what I suggest to a lot of kids to to view it as an experiment and not as a something you're going to win lots of awards with. Even even then, um, an example back in uh, two, 2012, I um, I wrote and directed a a a film funded short film called Paper Planes. Oh yes, yep. Um, and it was about a. A uh, refugee in in Sudan. It was a very heartfelt, close film to me because of some certain things that I'd um, experienced a few years prior. Um, and uh, that film was really, really successful. I got a, um, a a short screenplay nomination through the um, Actor Awards. Got uh, some won some great awards around the world, um, like a. Best foreign film at, at um, LA and uh, 
best director in um, the UK, um, won a bunch of awards in South Australia. And I remember when I was at these particular awards in um, in um, South Australia, the the, the SA Screen Awards, and um, a film director, which I'd worked for a lot as a as a gaffer, he came up to me and uh, he said, "Well, he pats me on the back and he says, oh, oh Storm, you've made it, hmm. you've made it.'" And I, I remember at the time wondering, "What the what what the hell does that mean?" Yeah. <laughs> now that was eight years ago, mm. and uh, you know, I mean, as I'm a director gaffer, I'm not a director salesman. Um, I'm not great at pitching myself. I'm not great at going out there saying, "Hey, look at me! I'm awesome. Give me mm. money for my next film." I'm like, "Have a look at my script. If you like it, I can, you know, turn it into a great film." Um, uh, so I hadn't made it, you know, made it at all. Yeah. I, I, it's made a great short film. You know, I, I, I made several others since then before I got to making, you know, my, my first feature. So it, it kind of makes me think, you know, that, um, you know, perhaps you never really make it. Now, I'd love to know what that means. You, <laughs> you know, you're, you're always learning. You're always striving to, you know, move forward, straight. You know, you always want to make a bigger, better film. Um, I'd... In, in, in sort of hindsight, I'd hate to think that I'd made a film and gone, yeah, that's it, I'm done, I've made it, end of story, you know, yeah. I can retire, you know, that'd be horrifying. Yeah, well, that, I, that I always say that if you, if you make a piece of work and you look at it and go, wow, that's amazing and you don't see a fault in it, then, then you should stop making films because really you're always there to learn and get better and... and Every film that you make is always, you know, it's only going to be as good as that. And the next one, you're going to take away a few things and improve. Um, so, yeah. I mean, and, you know, and that's what short films are great for. Like, you were, you know, you've won lots of awards with that film. and and uh, But I'm sure you didn't go in with the intent of going, I'm going to make a, you know, a festival film. Like, you just wanted to tell that story. And, and there was no, limita- no limitations for you with as far as, like, that's the short film I want to make and no one's going to tell me any better. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you were, you know, dare I say, if, if, if you're going to go, I want to make a festival film, you, you, you would probably make a film that hits all the minority groups. Mm. You'd probably write a script that's just, well, this minority group meets that minority group that's suffering from this minority group and they're all in one room struggling with a minority responsibility, you know. Yeah. That would be the film you would make if you were to, if you're serious about only making a film for the festivals. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important that when you make a film, you really you have to commit to actually being, you know, the champion of your own story and you really believe in telling that story because that will come through the screen. Um, That's right. So, you know. So, uh, let's talk about uh, your most recent feature film, which um, I've got to see, uh, called Escape and Evasion. And tell Sorry, us- have you seen it? Yes, I managed to catch it just before it all disappeared. <laughs> well, and, um, and, yeah, you know, great job. And it's, you know, really interesting um, topic that you've, you know, you've just talked about that, uh, 
it's a combination of obviously what you're passionate about, but it, it's also got a bit of a genre to it, you know, a bit of, um, you know, like, uh, how, uh, would you call it a, a mystery in a way to find out what's really happened in the story. Um, so what was your, uh, as far as the inception and the beginnings, what, what were some of the things you had to, uh, to do to get it made? Okay. Um, well, it's, uh, yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, I, 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 I wrote the script over, over 10 years ago. Um, it's, it's loosely based on um, a few uh, true stories. Um, there's a, a, um, a military friend of mine who we, you know, we discussed the, the idea with back then and sort of formulated a, a bit of an idea, a bit of a story. Um, and uh, I was also going to, um, oh, well, I was also involved in a documentary with a priest in um, who was smuggling um, Korean state people out of um, mm -hmm. Myanmar into um, Chiang Mai. And uh, so I was looking at making that film. Um, I never did because that priest was, um, was, was murdered. Wow. Um, which was pretty sad. Mm. Um, but I had all that information from that and I had this information um, from, from this soldier friend who had been in um, places like Iraq and um, Afghanistan, etc. Uh, so, yeah, the script I wrote and it evolved a few times because it, 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 it was originally set in um, Iraq and sort of changed. Yeah, so I'd, you know, I had this script and uh, just as I was finishing um, the school, uh, I had um, Blake Northfield come up to me. He's a producer. And he, you know, he said, I think I can, um, I... I think we can, you know, we can make escape. Let's um, let's uh, do it. I think we've got the money. That was amazing. So we just sort of made it. You know, like I um, I was I was I was quite surprised. You know, it was, it was just sort of one of those things that just happened mm -hmm. um, right off the back of my first um, feature film to go straight into a second one. Uh, he'd he'd shown the script to Screen Queensland. They um, immediately supported it. Um, we had investors which were um, backing it and uh, it just sort of came together really, really fast, like crazy fast. It was, it was the last thing I was expecting to happen and, uh, you know, coming off the post on the school and the next thing you know it, I'm in Thailand um, doing a rewrite on Escape and... Um, filming like uh, locations and stuff like that um so it sort of happened very very fast wow and, and what why did you want to tell this story what was that i mean obviously you've had a friend so that that impacted mm. you a little bit but especially about the subject matter why why was that so important to you yeah okay um what the I had, I had two things going on. One was that I wanted to tell a story that sort of uh, highlighted what was happening in um, Myanmar. But uh, the the backbone of the story was um, I wanted to show the struggle that um, 
some people go through uh, after, you know, like dealing with extreme trauma. Um, and uh, I've, 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 I've seen this trauma and um, I've watched uh, people struggle with finding a place because they're, you know, they feel so lost. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote the, the script specifically around the psychology of someone that has endured um, something quite, quite um, horrific where, um, you know, ethics and values just completely go out go out the window and you're just really left with not right and wrong, but you're just mm. left with the human condition. And, uh, you know, so that's the story I wanted to tell. For me as a filmmaker, I, I, um, um, I suppose I'm passionate about telling, a, telling stories where hope is the only thing you've got left. Um, Maybe it's just a little bit of something about my upbringing, perhaps. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you can sort of take a person and sort of um, take away everything from them, so that the only thing they've got left to keep them going is sort of hope. Well, you know, like for me, that's a strong story. Done. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the the backbone of Escape and Evasion. That's it's kind of the backbone of a lot of my scripts, I guess. <laughs> um, different genres, different characters, different situations, but um, uh, hope is definitely the the universal theme that um, keeps you going. And that's part of the mystery as well. Like like you said, like you're watching a film, going, oh, "What the hell has has happened to this guy?" Mm. You know. Like something really messed up has has has, has happened, and um, but the whole time you're hoping he's going to get through it. Mm. You know, you're like, come on, like like you know, you want him to bloody see see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you also need to know what what happens. So hopefully that sort of intrigue is is what you know people enjoy whilst also seeing something, you know, quite powerful about the reality of what goes on yeah, when I, you're I, suffering. I, yeah, that mm-hmm. definitely captured, like, that combination in as far as the mystery of what's going on, but also it was good that uh, your main character, you weren't sure if he was a good guy or a bad guy in a way. Like, he actually, you don't know if he was suffering because he did the, the, the wrong thing. And you trying to find yeah. out if that that's what it was, you know. And obviously, the the sister of the uh, uh, the one of the soldiers, you know, is that's she kind of implies that that he was, you yeah. know, he did something wrong, like actually something evil and and unconscionable. But you know, in the you know, you trying to find that out what happened to this character. And I think that's good to to show that you know the complexities that you, that people go through you know, in, in different um, lives. Like, it doesn't have to be a soldier. It can just be someone, you know, who's gone through different hardships. And, you've, you know, I think you've captured that quite well in it. So that, that worked, I think, really Thank well. Yeah. Um, so when when you came to putting together the, the crew, how, what, how, how did you make the decision on, you know, how to get for as a DP and, and the performance, the art, the actors, sorry? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How, how did you go with that? Well, um, 
you know, like uh, like any film in Australia, there were still um, budget constraints. Uh, so, you know, when we started casting, we uh, had to uh, work within um, a budget, you know, a budget that allowed us to, you know, look at certain actors, and uh, we started casting. And I, I must have looked at, um, I don't know, probably. 100 male actors and about 160 um, female actors for Rebecca. Um, and uh, it was interesting. I, um, I, I, I knew, um, I know Josh personally, Josh McConville, and uh, I, um, I'd, uh, I'd asked for him to, you know, like, you know, said to my casting agent who's bloody brilliant, Greg Apps, a uh, great casting agent, asked him if, you know, if he'd, hey, make sure that you, you know, contact Josh McConville's agent and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, about about a month later, like I still hadn't seen a tape or anything from Josh and um, I'd, I'd seen some great actors, you know, and they were like some of them were really strong drama performances and some of them were really strong like um, soldier macho performances. But... I didn't see the the performance I wanted where you had that strong drama combined with, you know, someone that could definitely pull off being a special forces, you know, soldier dude. Mm. Um, and I always knew this is something that I believe Josh could do. And I, I, I followed, uh, you know, gave him a call and he'd, you know, somehow he'd, um, he'd, he'd been missed and he said, oh, I haven't even, you know, seen anything. Mm. So anyway, he, he sent through a tape, and it was it was brilliant. And he changed his voice, and his his whole mannerism just was, you know, was the guy. Um, so he got the gig, um, and uh, you know, sifting through 160 auditions for Rebecca and um, Bonnie Sveen stood out, and um, God, poor girl, I think I think I called her in about three or four times in the end i think i in the end i think we flew her to the gold coast mm. and got her to um throw some lines bounce off some lines with um josh uh before we actually secured her um but they were great like the dynamics between them was awesome um and uh yeah i mean slowly we just put together a great team of um other actors, you know, like Rena Owen was an absolute legend. Uh, Faraz and Hugh were bloody great, you know. Um, Jesse, the little girl, and Jai, the the little boy. Like I was, I was so lucky to have such great actors. Mm. Um, with the uh, with the DOP, uh, I wanted a action DOP. Like like I can shoot drama till the cat the cows come home and we can shoot it fast and we can knock it out and we can get it done quick like a bully all over drama but we had a lot of action scenes and fight scenes and i've never directed machine gun fires and shoot them ups and blow them ups and punch outs so i thought oh shit you know like i need a dop that can is all over that just knows okay so you know we angle here and an angle there and we cover like this and this you know and um Wade Muller was mentioned and uh, he hadn't been in Australia for 19 years. He'd been shooting 
kung fu and action films mm. in Hong Kong and Thai. Uh, so he certainly had the creds. Anyway, I, I met Wade and he was like the most beautiful guy you could imagine. You know, he's very quiet and thoughtful and humble, sincere. And I thought, yeah, no, I can, you know, like him and I are going to smash this, which is which is exactly what we did. He was, he was awesome, you know, um, a great DOP. He got to come back to Australia, shoot an Aussie war film. Mm. Um, and that, and that, and that, so we had a great um, designer, Michael. Um, again, you know, we uh, we went with a, uh, a a designer that was Queensland based and um, uh, just knew how to, you know, like work with the budget we had to produce mostly more sort of like the the jungle um, scenes and the war scenes more so because the you know, the drama stuff's um, not so difficult. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, so you only shot it in Queensland, like we, I guess, in we shot, Tamarine. Um, yeah, we shot most of it in um, Queensland around um, Mount Tambourine and um, the Gold Coast, uh, and we shot a small portion of it, um, uh, like background plates and um, some jungle stuff in. Um, Thailand up in um, Chiang Mai, and I think we even wound up with a few um, a few little bits from um, uh, some drone footage from uh, Cambodia. In the end, um, yeah, just uh, well, yeah. It's, it sold it. Like uh, to me, it was like, yeah, you know, I'm, even yeah. though I know where it might have been filmed, but it definitely yeah. uh, sold it. I think that it worked. Um, yeah, and obviously the. The memory sequences, the color treatment was a little bit different. It just added that that foreignness to it as well, which was good. Yeah. Um, and so being a gaffer, did you? How was that? Like, were you kind of still focused a little bit on the lighting and and you know with Wade, or you just let Wade d- deal with? Uh, not, not not at all. I mean, I've um, with all the all the films I've made as a director, I just just. Just walk away from the the lighting completely, um, and uh, just uh, you know I um, just rely on the you know great gaffer and a good DOP to take care of that. Um, in in saying that, I I think there might have been one time. Um, I think there might have been one time, and it might have been in the pub. The oh, yeah. pub scene might have gone to Wade and gone. Oh, I think I think it's too dark. <laughs> as a gaffer i'm always trying to make it dark yeah know, like a, like i think it always looks better dark you know like just just have a little bit of you know a little bit of highlight and a you know ambient feel um you fell in a director's but, trap i've heard that from directors when i've done a few you know yeah. a few projects where oh i think it's looking dark pete i'm like nah it's all good it's all good <laughs> yeah yeah so it's you know it's, yeah i can't i kind of find it funny yeah. You know, I think it's too dark. Oh, no, sign <laughs> of a true director. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it's it is is one of those things when you're directing. It's it's a you know it's a it's a scary thing because you've got all all aspects of it is is on you really. So you sometimes yeah. want to have a little bit of a safety net, and you don't want to go too push it too far. But on the other hand, 
you know, why not? <laughs> so it's a tricky task. And so with the um, production, uh, how long did that take to shoot? And was there any kind of difficulties getting it made or it all? Yeah, yeah. we had five weeks shoot mm. and uh, would have loved, you know, at least six weeks. But mm. we, we had five weeks to shoot it. And, uh, yeah, we had all the usual sort of things come up. Uh, we, um, one, we, what do we have? We had floods one day. We drive up to a location and um, what well, was a creek was a, was a raging torrent that we mm. couldn't cross. Um, so we had to quickly sort of work out, well, how are we going to, you know, change the shooting, change locations. Um and, uh, you know, we had things like snakes, leeches and ticks every day we were in the jungle mm. um, and mud. <laughs> um, I, f I feel very sorry for um, uh, Bart, our, our grip, who um, so lovely brought out track on one day with his, you know, with the, the Chapman dolly and a big length of track and... Um, it's just pissing down with rain and it's just that orange, orangey red mud everywhere. And I remember looking at him and he just looks at me and goes, you owe me, Storm. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a week of cleaning to let he, you know, get this gear, you know, back to normal. Um, yeah, so so we had all those issues. Um uh, strangely enough, we had one location issue, which was Rebecca's um, uh, home, her um, house. You know, like I said, all I want is a, a house with a long hallway. And bloody hell, do you think you can find a house with a long hallway in um, on the Gold Coast? No, no. <laughs> they just <laughs> they don't exist. Um, so we did have you know a, a couple of location issues, but uh, eventually it all it all it all worked out. And with uh, getting the film out, I, I did see that it had a bit of a second chance almost because I remember it kind of came out and then you, you you couldn't get the theatrical release and then it, and I think it was a palace that picked it up and then, of course, the virus hit. So, I mean, like how, how did that happen to you? Like how did you kind of deal with that situation of getting the film out and hoping that, you know, people actually go see it? Yeah, I mean that's an. In, I mean that's it's kind of an inter interesting question because I don't really have an answer. Mm. So um, I, I, I'm still trying to get my head around how actually getting a film seen works. Um, you know, it's it, it it's it's an interesting thing because um, unless unless your film is is um, funded by Screen Australia. And therefore, comes with a set budget for a P, um, you know a P and A spend component. Um, there's uh, or unless you have um, an A list actor attached, which also comes with their own sort of P, um, P and A spend, um, the sales agents actually don't have any money to advertise the film. Mm. So, like. From what I understand is apart from, you know, the odd, uh, uh, you know, radio and, you know, like really small little social media 
um, promotions like what we we do ourselves. Like when I, you know, put a picture up of a scope on my Instagram and go, hey, come check out this movie. It's screening mm. March, Feb, uh, March 5th. Um, there's just no no advertising mm. and there's no money in it. Uh, so it's it's tricky. And then you go to the um, cinemas and say, hey, we have an Australian film with actors you may not have ever heard of. <laughs> we would like to screen in your cinema. Is there a some is there room between that Hollywood movie and that Disney movie that you can screen it? And they just laugh at you. Mm. So you know it is hard to screen independent Australian films. Um, uh, as it was with, you know, uh, Blake Northfield and um, Backlot did, you know, a great, a great job and we, you know, we got, I think, uh, I don't know, like 30, 35 cinemas screens to one screen. Um, and uh, from what I understand, uh, word of mouth started getting around and, and it started to actually pick up from people seeing it. Um, and then the virus hit and then it just sort of crashed. Um, but I did hear that um, Palace, who weren't screening it prior to um, the virus, had heard about it and are now going to release it, like a second release sometime in the future. Um, which is amazing. Mm. You know, so it's going to get another second little, you know, another semi-second theatrical release in, in Australia. So definitely look out for it. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's um, that, that's a chance that would not very often happen. So that, you know, you've got to praise the gods for that one um, in in this industry at the moment. And yeah. who knows the after the after the lockdowns are finished and where things will stand as well I, I it's a bit of a strange time to know uh how you, how do you get your projects out you know if you've got films that are just in post and do you wait another year before things get back you know it's uh it's interesting a- i did i had um a sales agent in taiwan contact me personally a few days ago um saying we want to buy your film. We want to release it in airlines and cinemas and online. Like we want blah, blah, blah. Mm. I'm like, oh, wow, it's amazing, you know, and uh, you know, forward that through to my producers who then forward it to the sales agents. Um, and they were like, yeah, we hadn't sold to to um, Taiwan. And, like, mm. here here they are reaching out to us. And I have no idea how they heard about the film. Like it's, it's um, you know, I've got. A Taiwanese um, DOP who's a mate who was talking to me about it, you know, a week prior to that. Maybe he mentioned it to somebody. Yeah, who it's knows? funny, isn't it? It just gets around. I mean, the the film has had some good reviews, fairly positive reviews, and I think that obviously helps it a little bit as well. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's these days it's a bit tough call because, you know, you've got that democratic kind of voting where people just go and review their own reviews and they can kind of trash it but i I think that's i think it's still from the the industry i think they still uh do refer to the the in commas professional um reviewers as far as what they think and then they kind of base their decisions on that i think it still seems to be that but i don't know 
if you don't respect David Stratton, well, then you know there's there's something going on there. You know, mm. and he gave you know, the film three and a half stars and a, a beautiful review. Mm. You know, and I mean, I was pumped. Um, even the Guardian, which are you know, yeah. I mean, they're brutal. Yeah, the Guardian, and they you know, gave it. You know, they said Josh's um, performance was you know um, just brilliant. You know, and they go to three stars. Yeah, I've been had some great, great reviews. Yeah, no, it's good to see, and I yeah hope when once things are settled and we we can all go out the doors, hopefully um, Palace can get it back on track and give you guys another chance. So really hope uh, yeah it has its chance to shine a bit more. Um, so I, I guess I want to I, I want to talk about uh, maybe a, a film that you've gaffed recently, the film Twenty Sixty Seven, because I've already had Jacinta and Earl um, about yep. it. So it'd be interesting to for, from your angle on, on how that project uh, you tackled, a, you know, sort of a science fictiony low budget film. Well, so yeah, tell us a little bit about about how um, working with Earl and how that. Um, with your input in it, how you guys achieved that that look that I guess they wanted to go for? Yeah. Well, um, Twenty Sixty Seven was a great film to work on, mm. um, and it, it was very ambitious for the budget. Very, very ambitious. I'll, I'll, I'll just say, I, I um, as a gaffer, they got a great discount from me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, Earl, Earl was an awesome DOP to um, work with. He was as um, first time I'd, I'd worked with him. Um, Seth is a wonderful director. Of, of um, I made the short for 2067 with Seth um, several years prior, um, and I, you know, I was very happy to see that he'd, he'd finally got it up and they were, you know, shooting it, making it. Um, it came with a lot of challenges lighting-wise because uh, we'd, we'd taken over, um, as well as location shoots, um, we'd also taken over both studios in um, South Australia and um, we had like three sort of sets built as well as a set built out in the car lock. Car lock. We got four. I kind of recall we had up to five sets at one stage. Wow! Um, and I had to try and have all these sort of relatively lit at once. Um, so it required a lot of lights um, and uh, a lot of equipment. And I happened to have all my equipment in Sydney, so I just packed up the generator trucks and the, mm. my Vecco and just just put you know. Shit ton of gear. Tracked to um, uh, back to South Australia, and um, come up with a way that we could, uh, yeah, make um, make it work. And we um, experimented with a few things too, just using um, uh, some uh, like RGB LED power cans and stuff like that, or. Uh, Old Harry 300 Mizars gelled up and running through um, dimmers and that to create pulses and mm. stuff, stuff like that. And um, we got a guy called, I call him um, 
um, Dave the LED guy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> his, his job solely was just to uh, run basic programs to all the LEDs we had around everywhere to be able to sort of get them to do what we needed them to do. Mm. Um, yeah, Earl, Earl mentioned and, uh, that, that you guys laid strips and things and and um, sounded pretty interesting that um, uh, I think you were trying to build it into the set maybe, some of the LED stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah we built they, – they were underpowered, which was fine, um, but that also meant that um, we, what we did, we just used sky panels um, on the floor to um, – just uh, uh, lift up the um, level that we needed um, in sequence with what the LEDs were doing. Uh, yeah. um, and that worked out quite nice. Uh, what, what we wound up doing, which I hadn't done before, was use um, uh, pipeline single tubes um, to the little phosphor, mm. um, phosphor daylight or phosphor tungsten uh, tubes. And we wound up um, using those for our, our really low light levels just to give eye lights and edges. And um, that worked a dream, a, an absolute treat. And um, I wound up uh, doing that a lot more now. So it's, 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 it's nice to uh, get, you know, use those tubes mm. like a lot more than I had. Um, you know, they really sort of came into their own on um, 2067. Wow. Um, yeah, it was. You know, we you know we had funny things like um, uh, ah, that's right. I remember we had this massive scene. Um, I actually wasn't there when they shot the scene, but I discussed it with Earl, saying this will work, this will work. But then I had to race off to China because I had Escape was um, nominated for best foreign film. At, the Golden Rooster, we had to race off there and carry on. Uh, so I um, left it with my um, brother to uh, lead to Gaff and um, it worked. And, and the thing we had to do was uh, we had to light a corner of a street and be able to shoot enough light about 200 metres down this alleyway. Mm -hmm. We had to get it up high because of sort of structures that have where people are going to be running across a bridge between one street to another. And we needed to hit a, use a light that could hit a, um, a part on the ground where people are crawling out, out of the road, but then also enough soft light to... Um, lift the level everywhere without it looking like hard light. Mm. And I thought about it and thought about it and thought, look, we put two 4K balloon lights on a cherry picker and then we spot up a 6K fres on the same cherry picker. We can give, you know, enough ambience that will feel everything without it being hard. Mm. And the... Um, the 6K Fres is like the perfect light because it's not going to be too spotty, but it's going to be focusable enough to be able to throw enough level onto that point in the ground where people climb out of the, the, the road. Yeah. And like, bugger me, like that's exactly what they did. 
and Earl and Lisa, it worked a dream. I think I think in the end they they called it I think they called it the bra light. The bra because it was these <laughs> these two giant um, balloons. Um, they may have called it the boob light, I don't know. The bra light. But <laughs> thing is, it, it um it 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 worked a treat. Wow. And uh, you know, that's a bit of experimenting, you know. Um working with uh, how to make it happen. Um, another thing we, you know, we did was we'd use T12s or three five Ks up in cherry pickers to um, on dimmers and stuff to replicate explosions where they then colour out around the um, the light itself and put in some um, some CG, mm. but the effect of light on the foreground show the explosion and stuff like that worked a treat mm. absolute treat yeah it's a it's it's these days a, it, it's all like a scary thought when you um you know use a light and it's in the shot and everything and yeah oh but you know it'd be fine we can remove it but it, that these days you can do that i think in um 1917 there's these behind the scenes shot where there's like a wall of i think it's brutes or something that roger deakins put in and you know i saw that before the film and i was like what's that about and then you watch the film and it's just a house on fire but you know it worked worked, works a treat looks beautiful because the guy walking past it just you know radiates this beautiful uh, firelight um yeah yeah, it's it's these days that you can achieve some of those things tricks because really um other than the some of the newer technologies they've come in which is basically LED screens, uh, you know, real-time images that, that can produce enough light to hit the characters. But outside of that, yeah. the only choice is to do those tricks. But they always work so well because you see films yeah. where they don't, where they just go, oh, we'll just green screen it, but they don't use the lighting to really cross-sell the connection between the character and, and what that CG effect is. And you can really tell because then it's just it's not there. We did the... I um I, I gaffed another sci-fi last year called um, Occupation Rainfall, mm. and that was Wade Wade Muller, and um, yeah, doing this the same thing. We just have the lights in shot for explosions, but we we had um with with that there were such big action scenes, and we needed to light the effect of the machine gun fire and the laser fire. Mm. on the character and in the wide shots or in the massive handheld shots like that required a lot and we in in some scenes i'd have up to 11 guys on manual heads Mm. with their specific job was to light up certain characters as though that was the flash from a machine gun or the flash from a laser and (laughs) we named everyone your machine gun, your laser, your the, you know. I mean, it's just in the old-fashioned way, you know, like eleven people on on on, you know, a light each manually with a designated job. Yeah, and um, looked amazing. Yeah, you know, just just you add your CG, you know, laser beams and and your flashes from your guns, and yeah. it's, it's all salt. Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? That it's it's really lighting that actually really sells it and even even if you just go old school manual but if you have the lights it's that's what actually 
sells the magic of movie in a way. So that's why I think, you know, uh, when people ask me what gear to hire, I always actually push towards lighting. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, um, there's, I mean, you know, the old joke, um, what you call a film without lighting? <laughs> radio. <laughs> that's it, you know. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean that's an interesting thing that yeah. you mentioned actually. That um, you know, like you are watching a movie, and uh, sometimes you you watch movies and there's so much dialogue and it's boring. So what do you do? Well, you light it really interestingly. So you know, again, lighting comes yeah. back I, into play. It's uh, even the you know even um, the greatest performances deserve good 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 lighting otherwise mm. you know i mean if you're let's say you've got no lighting and you've got someone delivering a really powerful um monologue and it's just flat mm. i mean like you're just taking so much away from all the work that they're putting in mm. you offer dynamic lighting and that just enhances the powerful performance that that they're offering so you're taking the film to a completely, you know, a whole other level. Hmm. Um, you know. It doesn't um, make much yeah. either. You know, it's not like you need all the fancy schmancy lights to produce something that will work for a scene like that. It's, you know, you could knock out an interesting shot with two lights to do that. So on a Definitely. Definitely. There's a, I mean, as a gaffer, um, you know, I'm always juggling, you know, between, you know, Buying new lights, buying the newest, latest thing that's coming out because you know the the young DOP I'm working with is going. Ah, oh, so you know you you have got a truck full of Ari orbiters now, right? And you're <laughs> like, oh well, how are we going to light this this film if you don't have orbiters? You know, um, you're like, well, we've been lighting amazing films for you know a hundred years now so i reckon we'll we've we've got it covered it's going to be okay yeah um yeah you don't need the greatest and latest um the good thing about the greatest and latest is you don't have to work as hard you know a sky panel is the lazy gaffers light you bring them out and you go what do you want and there you go yeah um but yeah amazing films have been shot you know beautifully looking films have been made with bloody tongues heads and HMIs, mm. uh, you know. Yeah, because, you know, at the end of the day, if you understand uh, light modelling, you know, like that you can, how you shape light, you can do a couple of things to, you know. Like to me, I always go Fresnel is sort of my number one because I know I can do lots with that. I can, yeah. have, I can have it as a hard light. I can have it as a soft light. I can direct it. I can cut it, blah, blah, blah. You know, like couple of those and you can do a lot if you know if you understand lighting so yeah. you know it's not Absolutely. and that's like you said it's like some people want all these fancy you know like the orb, orbit's pretty cool you know it's it gives you a lot but it's, it is a fresnel light with with the lens on so it already is essentially the same thing as an old light um, except you can do now colors with it and blah 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 um but it's yeah it's uh very expensive too so <laughs> Uh, you know, you can buy, pick up a, uh, you know, you know, Chinese knockoff Renault for a couple hundred bucks. You know, pretty powerful. 
sorted. No, it'll work. I mean, the 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 um the handle will probably fall off, but you know you can fix that. Yeah, that yeah, will be fine. Exactly. Yeah. If you've got to go DIY, well, you can do that. Uh, yeah. So in, in talking about going minimalist, is there a project that you remember that really sticks out where you've you've really had to, you know, come up with something, really pull it out of, you know, thin air kind of deal where you, it really challenged you? Let's see. It's, I suppose, as a director, no, of... Um and that's because I've always been lucky enough to spoil myself with um, it. Always, you know, like, like I, I don't think I've made a film that doesn't look good. Um, and uh, you know, uh, the simple fact is, it's because I've got lights. You know, the films look good because I've got lights. Mm. Um, uh, as a gaffer, there's um, yeah, yeah. There's been a few projects where. Um, um, you've got to negotiate what the vision is that the director wants and what we have available because of what the budget dictates. And, um, you know, the, you know, always the DOP is, you know, I've, all, I've always been fortunate enough to work with DOPs that are sort of on my side when we're going, well, actually, we can't achieve it this way. Mm. Because that would require, you know, these this sort of lighting package, and we're only paying for this. Mm. Um, I think uh, I think some of the toughest ones is where I've gone and helped my son when he's been um, gaffing projects uh, where there basically aren't any lights except for a handful of lights that the DOP owns. So he's, he's, he's employed to gaff um, an indie feature, but he can only use the interview lights that the DOP has. Mm. And um, you're talking about, you know, it's an indie film, so it's all strong drama performance. Mm. And, like, you know, shit, how do you, how, how do, you do this? Like, you know, the... We'll have to try and work with negative field because we can't put any light anywhere because you know all we've got is a, a blondie and a um and a, an LED wand that mm. doesn't give you the correct temperature <laughs> and you're like yeah um so yeah sometimes it's hard um and of course you, you get quite tired on those projects because you're actually doing sixteen hour days mm. um. So there have been those jobs. Which, that's, yeah, that's, that's, are, yeah, so that, that brings another topic on that. It, this is sort of the challenge we have in Australia at the moment, really. And, I mean, obviously with this coronavirus, it's like who knows. But if we step back just before it, it there, there is that issue of such low budget productions and long hours. Um, you know, like how do we... This this is the bit that kind of has to change. I mean, I know that people need to earn money, and and you know, if you go to Asia, you, you know, you can, uh, well, some Asian countries, you know, you, you can hire 20, 20 people for hundred bucks a day, kind of thing. But in Australia, you know, that's one person uh, for five hundred bucks or thousand bucks. So the tricky part here is, uh, you know, how do we, what what's 
what's the future for us to try and keep making projects on low budgets and trying to deliver a, you know, a very high-end looking job, you know? I mean, that's that's always the thing that they bring to you. I think, is, I think the trick is finding, finding the budget that works, mm. you know. Um, <clears throat> if you're... You know, if you make if, if you're making a film under a million dollars, then the um, then you need to be practical about you know how many shooting days you know you've got and um, how you're going to achieve it, and you have to think about you know where you can cut your costs that don't compromise the production values of the film. Mm. You know, if you're going to make a film under a hundred grand, that's it. It becomes a whole other a whole other thing. Um, you know, uh, like, like for me, and I suppose it's a personal thing, like it, 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 it took me over 20 years before I directed my first feature. I know some people, you know, walk out of film school and are directing their first feature, you know, within 12 months for mm. 60 grand. It took me 20 years because I wanted a, a film to look at it, at a, you know, I wanted my first feature film to look at a specific standard, I probably took too long. But <laughs> that same. That was a, you know the choice I made. You know, but you know to be able to get a film to look with strong production values and strong and and great performances, I suppose there is sort of a you know a a specific budget amount, and maybe it's somewhere you know around the three million dollars at the moment. I guess. Mm. You know, is seems to be the sort of the you know the amount where okay, so we can achieve um, a good film with good production values. Again, the problem with that is actually making that money back because it's you know mm. it's probably not going to happen. You know, even after your offset, you've still got to make one at art. You know, find another you know, one point five million dollars. It's it's probably never going to happen. Um, so yeah, it's tough. Mm, I guess I guess it's the um, the it, it's going to force the the model to change, and I mean, in, especially in Australia, but I think even in a wider scope internationally, I think they need to something's kind of got to budge and and change the way the whole process works. You know, like for example, like you're just talking about recouping your your budget and hopefully maybe making some extra money on it. Um, you know, like you've every region and you've got to go to you've got to have your distributor there and they take a big cut and everyone seems to take a big cut and not the filmmakers so you know this this idea that maybe a lot of filmmakers which has already started happening in the last sort of you know five five ten years is the self-distribution that you start actually having more access to it and i don't know like the streaming platforms maybe obviously need to answer a little bit for it that they need to push a little bit more of local production um, because, you know, people are uh, consuming, you know, your Netflixes and your stands like crazy. And I know Stan's got a few Aussie series, which is good to see, but Netflix has still got a lot to answer for. And so, yeah, some of the, I think that's the other trick um, as far as making money back because it's like, you know, the film, the last feature film I shot, it's, uh, you know, so for some reason it didn't make any money and you're like but wait a minute you paid everyone off like the investors 
um, and you've sold a million copies, like what's going on? You know, so there is there is definitely the small uh, the small fish, as, as I, I'd like to put it. You know, like us guys making these smaller films, um, they kind of get screwed by a lot of the the the, the, the process that it's, that it allows. So all these middlemen that able to get away there's, and say you don't make you didn't make any money but there's a, there's a lot of middlemen yeah in the film industry and i mean you know you just need to you just need to go go to um cans in 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 may not this may mm. but um any other year just to observe the um the decadency and the money spending and the parties and it's all at the expense mm. of um, your filmmaker's bloody budget. Mm. You know, you know, staying in 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 uh, penthouse apartments at two thousand dollars a day, throwing parties at you know ten to twenty thousand dollars a day, mm. and um, someone has to pay for that. Yeah. And it, it's it's not sales agents aren't, aren't paying for it. They just add it to the distribution costs of your film. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it's true. Business, you uh, know. Um, yeah, hell, man, I reckon get rid of all of them. Yeah. Just just forget that and um, the um, producers just work directly with the bloody cinemas and just, you know, I, d- I don't know, I'm probably talking out of hand, but... Um, uh, you know, any of the money made after that just isn't going to filter back yeah. unless you're bloody Chris Hemsworth attached to your film. And so then, you know, the windfall is big enough that it mm. does get back to you. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh did, uh, I think, uh, uh, Logan Lucky, and that, that's where he literally self-distributed. He approached the exhibitors himself. Um, yeah. and, you know, he had big names on the film, so obviously that helped. Um, but it's, I guess, engaging with with the industry itself and and the people that walk away with the Bitcoin, they probably need to answer a little bit too, in a way, because again, it's the middlemen, the agents going, "Oh no, we're not going to do a film unless it's minimum five mil." Blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, when when you know these actors, you know, fair enough, they've they've got to be protected and all that, all those things, but they kind of need to answer a little bit for doing projects where they actually believe in rather than just a paycheck and go, oh, well, they'll pay me five mil, so I'll do it. Um, you know, and that's not all actors, obviously, just, but there's, again, the middlemen pushing that kind pushing up the the price of, of having those, um, you know, the, the cast in those films so they can walk away with a big paycheck. So it's, uh, yeah, that's the sad part that I think, um, People talk about cinema dying, but I think there's that element to it as well, that <clears throat> cinema dies because of people, these middlemen that don't care about filmmaking at all. It's 100% business, not a, a balanced view on, on the filmmaking process where, that yes, it's a business, but you've also got to be have a passion for that project and, and want to be part of it. Um, you know, you, you're trying to create a piece of work. Um, I think that's that's where a lot of it is starting to fall away. So yeah, it's interesting times ahead. I mean, I, yeah, this once the lockdowns and the coronavirus finishes off, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know where things will be. But hopefully, everyone just wants to get back on the projects and get going with it. Um, 
I can't help thinking it'll um, there'll be a, a massive hole and demand for TV, mm. um, but there's going to be a lot of broke production companies out there. Mm. So um, I'd imagine it'll be a slow process, but there will, but a productive one. Mm. Um, yeah. And so, in talking about the the grim um, short term future, where what are, what's your what are your future projects that you're working on at the moment? Okay, yes. Yeah, so, um, uh, I'm just I've I've teamed up with an amazing um, talented casting director, um, and uh, um, just been uh, yeah, working with her. Um, on uh, studying cast and which cast to attach to the work that I've I've, I've got available. Um, so that's a lot of fun. Um, got a, a sci-fi drama um, a feature film, father daughter lost in the lost in the Australian outback during very very dangerous times. Um, with some nasty people chasing them. Um, various environmental film, I've got that sort of sitting there. We're just starting to shop that around. Um, very large budget um, sci-fi TV, um, high-end sci-fi series that uh, we're finessing and um, I have a... a Great producer who's um, got some um, some people which are just waiting to uh, have a look at that. We've um, we've had some success with that just recently with some um, uh, streaming bodies. Um, so that's all exciting. Um, and then there's uh, there's just projects um, I'm writing which I've got plenty of time to just just keep developing. Um, I was going to sort of uh, reach out to uh, see if there's any writers that wanted to sort of team up and work with me on them, but I don't know. I've got so much time now. Maybe I'll just sit there and slug away. Um, could wind up with two TV series and about four features sitting there to shop around by the end of three months. <laughs> well, it's a time to do that. I mean... For you, uh, especially, the thing is, if you do get, you know, strike gold with a project, um, that the first thing they'll ask is, "What are you making next?" You know, so you got to have those uh, yeah. in in the bank basically, and ha- have them ready to go, and then you can offer them not just one, but you can offer them four, four or five different projects, so they can yeah. just pick and choose, and that means hopefully for you, you've pretty much got an, another project going, so. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You've got plenty of work, plenty of projects, and varying budgets too. You know, there's a little script there that's that's you know it's in a second draft stage. Um, you know, you, you could actually only make it for a hundred grand. Um, it's one of those little indie ones I was I was talking about. Mm. You smash it out in two weeks, and there and there you have your little indie um, drama piece. Um, then there's other projects which are, you know, in the in in the millions, tens of millions. Yeah. Um, good. To, yeah. I mean, it's, it's always good. good to shoot for the stars. It's important. 
yeah. and and yeah, I mean the the good thing with the indie pieces is you can if you know when you're writing this script, like you said, it's the right budget, then then you can make a film. It's just you've got to make sure that you you you're being objective and realistic about okay, I'm writing this script, and actually this is five million. I can't do it any cheaper. So I think it's, right. you've got to be a lot of. I think that's what's happened. Like you said about kids come out of film school, they make a film on sixty thousand dollars, but their script is actually calls for a you know two three million dollar film. Um, you know, and then you, all, all you're going to end up doing is making a film that no one's going to see, and and it will never reach that status that you know or, or that uh, vision that the director might have had. So I think it's important to very objective. Oh, and uh, now we'll finish with a, a fun little question that I like to ask everyone. What's your favourite film and why? Mm. Such a big question. Such a big question. Because um, it's, it's, uh, I tend to have, um, like, my favourite film changes between, you know, days, weeks, decades. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, like I sort of have a, a bunch of favourite films. Um, uh, I suppose it's tricky. I'd probably say um, um, my favourite film at the moment is an animation called um, Princess Mononoke. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's a great sort of... Um, hero's journey mm. um but then you know i mean it's a you know your hero is 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 struggling with um you know the i suppose you almost call it a a violent cancer mm. um and uh all your characters are um complex you know right down to the the iron lady who's um the bad guy mm. but she's to you know save um keep all these lepers alive that are dying you know like yeah it's um it's 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 one of my definitely up there as one of my favorite films because of the the complexities of the um the characters i would love to see a live action version <laughs> of that film uh, it, it's 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 overdue and it, it needs to happen <laughs> Um, I mean, it's a great. I mean, and it's got a great message about the you know the environment itself, which exactly. I think it's so, so good in that. And the beauty of anime films is that every shot is lit exactly how it should be lit. So that's what I love about anime. Every frame you could put out on the wall and print it because it's perfectly lit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that film. Um, otherwise, you know, I often default to films like the um, original Blade Runner mm. um, or, um, you know, uh, a film like uh, The Big Blue, mm. Luke, Best Albums. Yeah. Know, I love that film. Um, yeah. Yeah, fantastic uh, films. There's I mean, actually so many, you know. Oh yeah, we always have got too many. I, I always kind of just go, well, "What's the one that I always just end up going back to?" You know, I yeah. want to watch when I see a little photo from it or a little someone post something. I'm like, "Oh, I can watch that again." <laughs> I think the, probably the film I've watched the most is would be um, Fifth Element. Oh yeah, 
um, you know, and it's like I'd never considered, oh, I love that film, but then it's hell, I've watched that film a lot. Mm. Yeah, and every time you watch it, you sort of see stuff you've missed the time before and go, why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's the the um, the mise-en-scene is so rich. Mm. The production design is so rich in that film. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and that's what I think that's the proof in a putting in a good film. Like that's how I kind of rate movies as well that, uh, you know, there's movies that I go, that was a fantastic film, but I'll never watch it again. And then there's yeah. f- films where I think you do want to, watch and and experience that story over and over again because it's got that that you know rewatchability like to me that's a better film that's right yeah so you know films you know princess mononoke is definitely one that i've already watched many times and like you said fifth element is just like a a minimum once a year for me because yeah it's such a film you can just watch in great story great messaging everything's just top but it's not heavy not too heavy for you to go ah I've got to be in the mood for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a wonderful chat, um, Storm. Yeah, and, um, yeah, thanks so much for being on it. And uh, all the best with your work. And, obviously, while you're yeah. locked down, good luck with getting all your scripts done. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed another episode with uh, Storm Ashwood. And, yeah, look out for his film, Escape and Evasion. And I, th- I believe it might get a second chance uh, once the... COVID virus lockdowns are gone, but otherwise it hopefully will be available soon online. And next week I have Mark Wareham, who's uh, a very experienced cinematographer who has shot uh, some uh, great uh, TV series, Australian TV series, but also some international projects and feature films. More recently he's worked on the TV series Preacher, uh, which he's shot half of season four. And so, yeah, he's a busy man. So look out for it in next week's episode.